before we look into the Word. Lord, as we have the opportunity to open your Word, the living Word of God that is eternal, never fades away. Lord, we thank you for what a wonderful gift it is to us. How precious is your Word. When we know that there are so many people in our culture and society today who are psyched and getting ready to celebrate the beginning of football season. And that's what they live for. That's what they are all anticipating with great sense of excitement. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of opening your word and hearing through your word and understanding the mind of our God. So, Father, may your Holy Spirit bring it alive to us. We pray that you take the foolishness of preaching and accomplish your purposes in our lives by drawing sinners to Jesus Christ and those who are saints deeper into fellowship with him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Young children have a wonderful way of exaggerating the extent of their parents' knowledge. At times, children are convinced that their mother or their father possesses infinite knowledge. I can remember when my father, I can think of my own father when I was growing up, I thought my dad knew everything. He could name, as we walked in a hike, he could name every tree based on the leaves that he watched. He could identify all the trees. He knew all the geography all over the place. He knew all this stuff. But some of us can know that when we're thinking about what our parents know or we thought they know, see if this experience of this woman rings true with you. This woman said, I used to believe my mother had eyes on the back of her head because she always caught me doing something I shouldn't have been doing. I should never, she, she says, I could never find those extra pair of eyes, however. She said they only opened up when I was doing something bad. I remember testing her one day while she had her back to me. She was standing at the kitchen sink, washing dishes. So I stuck my tongue out at her. And she said, I saw that. Put your tongue away. She said, I was flabbergasted. Parenthesis, it wasn't until 10 years later that I found out what happened that day at the kitchen sink. The window over the sink showed my reflection. Now, obviously, the extent of human knowledge tends to be a little overrated. After thousands and thousands of years of observation and research, we are still, even today, even this week, there was an article in the paper, by the way, we're still unpacking the intricacies and the details of the components found in one cell in the human body. Despite an exponential growth of information on the internet, we still don't know with complete accuracy what has happened in the past, what will happen in the future, or what's happening in the thought life of the person sitting beside you. We have no clue. One area, of course, that separates humans from their creator is the breadth and depth of knowledge. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible to the first verse we're just going to read is our launching pad here this morning. 1 John chapter 3, 
page 1448 and 1449. 1 John chapter 4, sorry, 1 John chapter 3, excuse me. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 19. Page 1448 in your pew Bible. Little children, let us not, sorry, verse 19, we shall know this, that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him, that is before God, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God knows all things. Another way to say that, using what we would call theological terminology would be to say God is omniscient. He knows all things. His knowledge is infinitely greater than whoever might be identified as the most uh, intelligent person on earth, the person with the highest IQ, the geniuses among us. God's knowledge is infinitely higher than that person's knowledge. This morning, I want us to take some time to think about God's omniscience by considering the reality of it in looking at the Scriptures and then considering a couple of controversies surrounding God's omniscience. And finally, we want to land on a very important point of the implications or the applications of how that makes a difference in our lives because there is a God who knows all things. So follow with me now as we look at the biblical affirmations regarding the omniscience of God. One of the obvious differences between human and divine knowledge is that we as humans spend a great deal of our lifetimes learning and relearning and doing some more learning and trying to know more about things we don't know about. And interestingly enough, God never needs to learn anything. At no time has God ever needed instruction. In Isaiah, in his book, chapter 40, he asks a rhetorical question, expecting the the obvious answer of no. He raises this question. He says, with whom did God consult? And who gave God understanding? And who informed God of the way of understanding? The answer is nobody. Nobody ever taught God anything. You see, the extent of God's knowledge is vast and all-inclusive. He knows, according to the New Testament, Luke 12, He knows the number of hairs on our head, which each year for me gets less and less, as some of you know what that's about. Uh, He knows also our inner thoughts. He knows the concerns on our hearts and our minds. Solomon, when he celebrated the extent of God's knowledge in the temple dedication prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, Acknowledge, he said, you alone, God, you know the hearts of the sons of men. And David even thought more about that. He says, you know, God knows even the secrets of our hearts, the things that we haven't told anybody, the things that we keep close to our chest, the real, the real difficult things that sometimes we don't want to share with people because either it's too embarrassing or too painful. God knows all those too. David was overwhelmed as he reflected upon the wonder of God's intimate knowledge of him. We read the verses earlier in Psalm 139. He says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. I love that way of expressing it. 
It doesn't just say, you just generally know a little bit about me. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. That's amazing. I can't say that about anybody I know. I've lived with my wife now for over 32 years. It's been a wonderful, blessed privilege of mine. I still can't figure her out. She still says and does things that surprise me, and I still have many ways in which I have not communicated with her, apparently in ways that she can understand either. She's not here today. I could say that about those. There's nothing wrong with that. She's visiting my mother, God bless her, and taking care of her. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, I would urge you to highlight and underline that verse. It's a verse that's worthy of your meditation later this week. Hebrews 4.13 spells out now the breadth of God's knowledge. Here it is. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things, not some things, not most things, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him him with whom we have to do. Now, I've I've thought about that. I've thought to myself, let's think that through in the life of Jesus. What did it look like when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? And what did omniscience look like in that sense? Well, there are numerous examples from the life of Christ of divine omniscience. We read in John chapter 2 that Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to other people at that time, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Clearly, that's not something you and I excel in. We do not know what's in other people in terms of their thoughts and their inner motives in life. In John chapter 4, an example of this is demonstrated when Jesus sits at the well in the middle of the day with a very a broken person sitting down there with him who comes in the middle of the day, clearly a person who is rejected socially to come at the hottest part of the day. This woman sits down at the well, and Jesus spoke things about this woman that she was astounded and amazed that he would know that about her. Never met her before in his life. In John chapter 6, Jesus said in response to those in the synagogue there in Capernaum as he's speaking, he said, there are some of you who do not believe, even though they're there worshiping in the synagogue. And then the parenthetical thought that follows that in John 6, 64 says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Jesus knew in advance which of the disciples was going to betray him. Jesus' disciples, after three years of listening to his teaching, drew this conclusion about his omniscience. They knew that because he had this extensive knowledge that was beyond human knowledge, it was divine omniscience, they reached this conclusion in John 16.30. We know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. And by this, we believe that you came from God. See, they put two and two together. He knows all these things. Clearly, he is not just an ordinary human being. He is God. Puritan pastor Stephen Charnock noted in his classical book, The Existence and Attributes of God, that in the same way human knowledge far exceeds the understanding of animals and birds and insects, 
So God's knowledge is infinitely greater than human understanding. Let's bring this down to where we live. Have you ever had a deep, significant conversation with your dog? With your cat? Your fish? If you've talked to your fish, I'd like to speak to you afterwards. We have some concerns about you. Or a bird or whatever, your pet. How much do they really know? We have so humanized these animals. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I won't go into that territory. I've already stepped into it. Shouldn't have gotten to that one. But the reality is this. If you think how much more you know than your mere pet or the animals that are loose, running around the woods around here, how much more you know than them, you take that and multiply that by a billion, trillion. And that's the kind of difference we're talking about between our knowledge and God's knowledge. It's huge. It's infinite. You cannot fathom it. And sometimes I think we are tend to have a, we have a tendency to try to put God into a little box. And we project, well, if we know this, then God thinks that way. No, He doesn't. He's infinitely greater than we are, including His knowledge. And the more we attempt to fathom God's omniscience, the more we are going to reach the edge and boundary and limitations of our knowledge. Some of you are already saying, yeah, we've already reached that maximum already. You've already sort of pushed me there. Okay, well, let's move to the second point here. I want us to consider briefly now several controversies surrounding the omniscience of God. You can, some people, when they hear the truth that God knows all things and that Jesus himself knew all things, they read about what the Bible teaches about these things, they've raised some questions. And it's okay to raise questions. We understand that. Some skeptics, however, have asked the question, if Jesus was God and he knew all things, how is it that according to Matthew 24, verse 36, that Jesus did not know the day or the hour of his final return? We, spoke, we sang about that song earlier. We sang about that theme. We read in Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, you must, you must grant anybody that has that kind of question. They've got a good question there, don't they? That's a good question. Here's the answer. The answer to the question why the Son would not have known that is that even though Jesus was fully God and fully man, He voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine attributes during his incarnational ministry. We're not saying that Jesus lost omniscience. We're saying that he chose not to use it at certain times. While it is true that he demonstrated divine omniscience, at times there were self-imposed restrictions on his human knowledge. It wasn't as if Jesus lost divine omniscience. It's very important that we not confirm that. I'm not saying that. He voluntarily laid aside the use of it to serve the purposes of his Father. And you say, well, then why is Jesus throughout his ministry asking questions? Jesus asked lots of questions. And I'm convinced every time I read his questions, the question was used in order to draw out of the person speaking and the person to whom he's talking to find out what they are thinking, what they are, uh, what they are struggling with, and to help make it clear to others around them where this person's coming from. It's not that Jesus needed to know the answer to those questions. 
He's using it as a teaching tool to draw them into the conversation and to therefore get them engaged. Now, here's the second controversy. I want to just quickly touch on this. In the rather recent past, there's been a movement among those in biblical studies of a group of authors who have proposed what they call open theism. Open theism. And also known as the openness of God. There are authors such as Clark Pinnock, and Greg Boyd, and John Sanders, and others who have written books on this theme. Now, these authors have come to various texts of Scripture in which they sense that God changes his mind or he repents. We talked about that terminology several weeks ago uh, and when we dealt with immutability, the fact that God does not change. And they've come to these texts and they've, they've come up with this conclusion. They've said that God has chosen to accept the future as open. That God has a relationship with the world that is dynamic. It's not static. And Pinnock wrote that the Bible presents a view of God as one who is living and active, involved in history, relating to us and changing in relation to us. So that God actually interacts with the world in such a way that He changes how He's going to, change, how he's going to react and what He's going to do. The future, therefore, is quote-unquote open for God as well as for humans, in that God has, according to this view, created a world in which he cannot know today what human beings will choose to do tomorrow. Now that is a radical departure from what we would commonly know as the omniscience of God. God does not know the future, they're saying. And God only knows everything that could possibly happen, not everything that will actually happen. Now, these authors suggest that God, again, has limited knowledge of the future. Now, to these views, I want us to bounce them off of and examine them through the lens of Scripture and, and again, just try to show you how I do not think that they stack up to and agree with with how the Scriptures present God. For example, consider the following. Number one, the Bible contains dozens and dozens of predictive prophecies regarding the Messiah. For example, his place of birth in Micah 5.2 is predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. The casting of lots for Jesus' garments in Psalm 22. Jesus' bones, the fact that they were not broken, clearly is seen in John 19 and Psalm 34 as being a significant prediction about Jesus. There are many others. Secondly, Jesus himself predicted future events, which would indicate he does know what the future uh, pertains to. For example, we read in Mark 13 that Jesus said, not one stone of this massive Herodian temple is going to be left on top of each other. And of course, in 70 AD, that was true. The Romans came in and destroyed it. Jesus also predicted in Luke 22 that Peter would deny him how many times? Three times. He didn't just say you're going to deny me once, three times. And indeed, that came true as well. Thirdly, I would say Isaiah, in his prophecies, spoke specifically about the king and the leader emperor of Persia. His name was Cyrus. He calls him by name in Isaiah 45, hundreds of years before uh, he came on to the throne. Uh, Daniel, in Daniel, off provided the numerous detailed prophecies about future political kingdoms and empires in the last five or six chapters of that book. And Scripture explicitly affirms that God knows the future. 
Now, there's two verses I've left for you in your notes. One is Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. I'd like you to read that some other time. I'm going to read Isaiah 46 for you right now. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 46. Page 871. Page 871, Pew Bible, Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. The reason I'm trying to emphasize this verse and the other verse in Isaiah 44 is because the point of this statement in Scripture by Isaiah is to emphasize the fact that God is not like the gods and the idols that these other nations worship, but because He is the true God, He knows the future. And if you deny that, then you're denying, in a sense, God's divine omniscience and His ability to do what only God can do. Chapter 46, verses 9. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring, what? The end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And then he's going to call the man of my purpose from a far away country. You should put in parentheses there, Isaiah 45, 1, where he named him Cyrus. That's what he's alluding to. Truly I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. I have very serious problems with open theism. It is an attack, essentially, and an undermining of the wisdom, sovereignty, and omniscience of God. The God that they describe in open theism is limited in knowledge regarding the future, and therefore, he cannot make infallibly wise decisions and plans for his people. So I warn you. Heads up, we must stick with what Scripture teaches and accept God on His terms. Now let's look thirdly now at some practical applications. We've affirmed that indeed God is omniscient. We've looked at some of the controversies surrounding those who've struggled with that. And then thirdly, I want to just point out to you several practical ways this should be applying to our lives. First of all, if we are followers of Jesus Christ and believers, as we think about God's omniscience, we as the children of God, would be encouraged to meditate upon this, to ponder it, to think about it, to reflect upon the fact that God has perfect and complete knowledge. And in so doing, after we've meditated upon it, after we've thought about it for a while, is to therefore have our hearts be filled with a response to God of wonder, of awe, of amazement, of adoration, whatever you want to put in that blank. That is the kind of thought. The more you think about it, it just blows you away and makes you appreciate how great and how knowledgeable our God is. And reflecting upon the fact that God understood David's thoughts from afar, that that God was scrutinizing his coming and his going, and that God was intimately acquainted with all his ways. What did David say in Psalm 139? He had thought about it, he pondered it, and he says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. If you can't learn to appreciate the greatness of God's knowledge, having read through some of these texts of Scripture, I would question what kind of thoughts you have about God. That should cause your heart to think, wow, that is amazing. You're so awesome, God. He is an infinite God 
who created these galaxies that we're still exploring and trying to understand, and yet this same God who created all of this mass amount of, 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 of creation is the same God who knows me and knows you personally and has intimate details about your everyday life and your thoughts and the issues of your heart. That ought to cause you to be amazed and draw you closer to God, not draw you away from God. You should be amazed at the thought that God, in knowing everything about you, still loves you. Indeed, David said, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. What do you consider precious in this world? What are the things that have great value to you? Let me tell you something. You ponder and meditate on God's omniscience. It will become, Jesus and God himself will become very precious to you. Because he knows me. You might think in this world, people don't really know the real me. God does. God does. And he wants you to know him. And the more you ponder his omniscience, the more you're what? The more you're beginning to understand who he truly is. And your heart hopefully will be drawn toward him. I find it amazing. 2 Timothy 2.19 says what? The Lord knows those who are his. Wow. Chew on that one for a while. The God who created all the billions of galaxies and stars, he knows those who are his. Here's another verse. John 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus knows his own. Think about that. Let that grip your heart. You are known by God. It's wonderful truths, wonderful truths. It lifts our hearts away from ourselves and up to God, learning to appreciate him and celebrating him. Secondly, the omniscience of God can have a practical impact upon us by instilling comfort, comfort to our hearts in every situation of life. As I said earlier today, even in my prayer, God knows what we're going through. He understands our every joy and He understands our every trial and hardship. Some of us, when we go through difficulties, we long for somebody to at least understand what it is that I'm going through, what it is I'm experiencing. God is that person. Listen to what Job said. Job chapter 23, verse 10. In the midst of all of his painful sufferings, Job says, God knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth with gold as gold. He knows the way that I'm going here. Not too many of us can say that we know exactly what you're going through. By the way, if you ever have somebody going through a lot of difficulties in your life, please don't say, oh, I know just how you feel. Please don't say that. You do not know exactly how they feel. You may have gone through a similar experience. You can share. You know, I did go through something similar to that at one time. But please don't say, as an attempt to comfort somebody, I know exactly how you feel. It just doesn't connect. But God does. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus addressed the church in Smyrna, and he says to them with this assurance, I know your tribulation and your poverty. 
Indeed, God knows when we're weary, when we feel the, the struggles of living in a fallen world with bodies that are just falling apart and getting not working the way they're designed to work. We read in Psalm 103, God himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Isn't it great to know that the God who never gets weary, the God who doesn't have physical ailments, is a God who knows that what we're made out of and knows that we struggle. It's awesome. Here's a word of encouragement. The prophet Hanani said to King Asa in 1 Kings 16, he says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God knows what you're up to when you're seeking to be open to him and not trying to run away from him. When we struggle with our failures, you're struggling with regrets, let me tell you something. You can find comfort in this truth of God's omniscience because we are known by God. And Peter is the one who picked up on this. A beautiful passage in John 21. Jesus is seeking to restore Peter to ministry. He's asking him all these questions. And after the third question, Peter takes comfort in the realization that Jesus actually and accurately understood his heart. He says this. He says, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. Sometimes we don't express maybe our love to God in ways that we wish we could, and we oftentimes fail and fall short. But God knows our hearts and how we do have an openness to Him, a longing for Him, a love for Him. He knows that. He understands us. There's comfort in that. Thirdly, though, however, the omniscience of God is meant to deter sin. To deter sin. Since God knows everything there is, to know there is no such thing, my friend, as secret sin. At least not in perspective, not in, from God's perspective. There's no such thing as secret sin from God's perspective. No one ever sins and, quote, gets by with it, unquote. And I'm going to give you a verse now that was quoted to me, and I'm thankful it was, many a time when I was a young boy. It's easy to remember. Numbers 32, 23. Numbers 32, 23. Say, what verse is that? Oh, it's a good one. Be sure your sin will find you out. What's that saying? The Lord is saying in that passage, don't think that you can sin and somehow pull one over on God. There's no such thing as secret sin from the perspective of God. All forms of hypocrisy are futile. God is never fooled by outward displays of piety that serve as a cover for corruption or for some forms of ungodliness in our lives. And there's a quote there in your, book, in your uh, notes, and this I found, it's anonymous, I don't know who said it, it's a good word, secret sins on earth, sorry, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Isn't it interesting that Moses, looking back upon his life, wrote at the end of his life Psalm 90? It's a fascinating insight. If you know that about Moses, that he's the author of that particular passage, Psalm 90, you realize he's writing it after 120 years, or 119 years, let's say, 
he reflects back on the time in his life in which he secretively reacted in anger out of a, a, an, an injustice that he observed, all of the uh, misuse to the various uh, Israelites by the Egyptians. He, it says in Scripture, he looked this way, he looked this way, and he killed that Egyptian. And then what did he do? And it says, when he saw no one, and then he hid the dead body in the sand. Now, what's that doing? He's saying he's trying to commit an act of anger and then cover it up. So what does he say in Psalm 90, verse 8? He thinks about that, and he wrote this. He says, Lord, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. God sees everything. He sees everything. And there's so many of us who unfortunately know the reality that sin thrives in darkness. Sin thrives when people are hiding it and trying to keep it as something that no one else knows about. That's where sin just multiplies. And if you read scriptures carefully, you'll notice that God constantly is trying to teach his people there is no such thing as secret sin from his perspective. Joshua 7 is a passage to meditate upon this week. And the sin of Achan. God exposed the sin of this one man. Many people were affected by that sin. It could not be hidden. Ananias and Sapphira trying to pull one over on the early church, saying one thing that's not true. Exposed to everybody. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. The more you understand and meditate upon the knowledge of God, that it is He knows everything, it makes it realize it's ridiculous to try to hide from Him. What am I doing? Think how foolish it was for Adam and Eve to be what? Hiding down below and behind a bush somewhere. As if God's not going to see them. And yet, isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? Omniscience of God will help deter sin. It really will. Fourthly, since God is omniscient, we have much encouragement to pray. I have found this so helpful in my meditation on this during this week. You see, when we pray to God, we're not trying to say, Hey, God, I know you don't know what's going on, so let me just fill you in here. That's not the way prayer works. Prayer is designed as a proper way for us to make known our desires and needs to God for our benefit and for His glory. So, if you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, page 1147, in the Pew Bible, Matthew 6, you'll find amazing insights about prayer that Jesus teaches with those people who had such a, a twisted and, and weird way of thinking about, again, the, the people who were hip, hypocritical and who were just play-acting and who were just going through the motions when it comes to prayer and blabbering all these prayers over and over and over again. So everybody thinks how impressive they are to praying out loud on the corners of the marketplace. Jesus speaks to those points and says, listen here, let's, let's understand what prayer is like. Verse 32, your, fa- your heavenly Father, to those of us who are so worried and anxious about everything, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. That's the first premise. God knows what you're up against. He knows the situation and He knows what you need. Then you say to yourself, well, why should I pray? Because the Scriptures tell us to. 
That's a good answer. How do you like that one? I can't explain all the, the, under, the uh, mysteries of prayer, but we know that there are many benefits for those of us who learn to just open our hearts to God and tell Him our situation and relate to Him like children do to, to a loving Father. Look at uh, earlier in the text there, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. He says, Jesus says, When you pray, go into your inner room. In other words, don't be outside and don't be making a big show of your prayer life. Go into your inner room where there's privacy, close the door, and pray, watch this, pray to your Father. Who is where? Who's in secret? You can't see Him. And and in the world's eyes, that's ridiculous. Why are you wasting your time in this little, little place that nobody knows what's going on, and you're talking to someone you can't even see? Keep reading. And your Father who sees what is done in where? In secret, he sees it, he will reward you. If God knows what I'm saying, he knows my thoughts, he knows my heart, he knows what I'm saying to him, then we know we're communicating with our loving Father through prayer. Would you notice also in the text that when he says, pray to your who? To your Father in heaven? It does not say, pray to some dead saint doesn't say that. And the tragedy is so many people are offering prayers to dead humans who do not have the infinite knowledge of the almighty creator God. And so I say to you, as Charnock said, to implore any deceased creature for a supply of our wants is to make those people deities that were but men. They're only humans. They are not God. Why are you praying to them? Pray to your Father. Also, let me just say to you, when it comes to prayer, it's vital that we must confess our sins to God in order to approach God appropriately. If you're not regularly confessing sins to God, then you're not relating to God on the basis of truth, admitting to Him what's really going on. So Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And David certainly knew what that meant because he found comfort in Psalm 38, said, Lord, all my desire is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. In other words, God knows what I'm struggling with. My sighs are when I can't even pray. I don't even know what to pray, but God knows my sighs. He knows what I'm struggling with. And who can discern his errors? Psalm 19, forgive my hidden faults. The psalmist writes, so I hope that you're opening yourself up to God and admitting and, and just being truthful with God. He, he, can, he, he can handle it. Why? He knows it anyway. <laughs> Why can't we be honest with Him? And then flee to the cross, my friend. Flee to the cross. And know that Christ has promised us full, complete forgiveness through His shed blood. That's how we can deal with truth. 1 John chapter 2, read it again. First couple of verses there. We have fellowship with God. Through Jesus Christ, His blood cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1. I'm going to add another point here. It's not in your notes. You're going to be mad at me, but I'll take it. Number five, under believers' things. Accept the limits that God has placed on certain realms of knowledge. We have to accept the fact that God has chosen not to reveal certain things to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. There's nothing hard to remember. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong unto the Lord our God, 
but revealed things belong to us and our children. There are certain secret things that God has. We are not, we have no business knowing those things. Therefore, we have to rest in knowing that God knows. He doesn't want us to know certain things. Can you live with that? I finally have learned to, to, to live with that because what? I'm not God. So, okay, I don't need to know everything. Now, that includes things like people who are trying to pry into divine secrets through astrology, through divination, through consulting psychics, as is there some woman here on Long Island, who now is a form of entertainment in our culture, mediums, people who are trying to connect with the dead, the realm of the dead. Guess what they're connecting to? Probably demons, a lot of demonology and all that stuff. Sorcery, interpreting omens. Read Deuteronomy 18. It becomes very clear to you that God condemns his people from pursuing knowledge that they want to know in the realms beyond this world. He says, don't pursue it that way. If I've chosen not to give it to you, then you don't need to know it. Trust in Jesus. He's the one who came back from the dead. He'll tell you the truth. No extra charge for that one. All right. I cannot finish the sermon, however, until we take a moment and think about there is a lot of comfort, there's a lot of help, there's a lot of edification as we think about God's knowledge, but there's a lot of warning here, my friend, for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, who are not believers. For an unbeliever, God's omniscience ought to instill terror into your heart. Because God is going to judge every single person according to his perfect knowledge of all of the facts. I can't do that. You can't do that. Nobody else can do that. But God has perfect knowledge. And there is no sin that will be hidden or forgotten by God. Many of us have forgotten our sins on purpose. We don't want to think about them anymore. We want to bury them in the past. My friend, God knows your whole story. And every person, every deed of every person, every thought and every deed of every person is before God like an open book. It's just right there. It's known to Him. And so we read in Psalm 33, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. God knows everything. If your works have been wicked, and you have been fashioning things that are dishonoring to God, he knows every single thing. From your youngest years to where you currently are right now. And what a poor refuge is secrecy to a sinner. Because you're not going to keep anything secret from God. Matter of fact, when you think about the text of Scripture, and I think about this often, I tell you, we need to keep reading Proverbs 5 and 6. There's so much practical help in there. In a world in which we have so much sexual sin and immorality, the writer of Proverbs makes this statement, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all His paths. If you let that truth 
fully rest and settle into your heart and soul and mind. Hopefully it will make you think twice before you're involved in further forms of immorality and dishonoring to God in in your sexual life. Jeremiah warned those who thought they could ignore the seriousness of their sin with these words. uh, Jeremiah 32, O great and mighty God, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone, there are no exceptions, everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. If you are not hidden in Christ and you are not trusting in Christ and repenting of your sin and embracing and entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ and his death on your behalf and his resurrection to give you new life, my friend, you are going to face the weighing of every single event, every single thing you've done to offend God in word, thought, or deed, you will be held accountable for every bit of it because he's got the whole record. He knows it all. When I was a kid, I was terrified of dying for that reason alone. I knew God well enough to know that I couldn't pull one over on him. And I didn't want to dare face him. And the thought of dying just terrified me. My friend, I'm no longer afraid of that at all. Because my sins have been covered through Jesus Christ. They've been buried in the deepest sea. And although God knows everything about me, Jesus' righteousness has been granted to me by faith. And my sin has been placed on Christ. And my identity is no longer as one who is only known for sin. My identity now is I'm a child of God by faith. Can you say that, my friend? Because you're fully exposed before God. You're going to be like Adam and Eve hiding behind some bush somewhere when God's calling out for you. Where are you going to hide then? There's a verse I want to go back to and I want to end on it because it keeps before us the true character of God, the omniscient judge, the omniscient king and Lord over all. Hebrews 4, verse 7 says, Do not harden your heart. Do not let this warning just go past you, my friend. Don't become pompous and think you're going to somehow find your way out of this situation. You are put into a corner someday before God. And there is no creature, that includes you, my friend, there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Therefore, flee to Christ. Let's pray. O God, who knows all things, we thank you that in reviewing these truths today, Lord, we have been reminded of the foolishness of pretension, the foolishness of pretending, that somehow that we are better than we really are, that somehow we can fool you or fool other people. Lord, I pray that you would banish all such ridiculous thinking. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these passages of your word and that we would have an accurate and a sobering view of you as the God who is omniscient and who knows all things, past, present, and future. And I pray, Father, that you would use these truths to humble those who are proud and arrogant and who have gone astray, who have gone their own way, who have lost sight and tried to forget many of their sinful deeds. I pray, Father, that you would use these truths to humble them, convict them, we pray. 
May the day of accountability help them to realize how desperately they need a Savior. And may they, even this day, we pray, Lord, turn to Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, you know my sin. I can't hide them from you. May they come and say, Lord Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I need you and your sacrifice to be applied to my life, to pay the debt I owe. And I surrender to you and I give myself in repentance to turn from my sin and trust in you alone for my salvation. Lord, I pray that this would be the day that you would draw people to yourself because they see you as you are, the true and living God who knows all things. But Lord, I also pray that those of us who know you as the true and living God who knows all things, that we would find comfort, that our hearts would be drawn to you rather than running away from you, rather than try to hide from you. Lord, help us to embrace the wonder of who you are. Help us to find assurance that when we're going through the hard times, that you're right there, you understand what we're dealing with. May we pray more earnestly and sincerely. May we open our hearts to you more humbly. And I pray, O oh Father, may we find more delight in you. What an awesome God you are. That knowing all about us, you would still love us. Oh, the sheer wonder of it all. Father, may you be glorified in our midst as we endeavor to proclaim Christ and Him crucified and Him who knows all things that we would find our greatest delight in hiding in Him. We pray in His name. Amen.